let me see here. There we go. All right. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Global Math Department. My name is Lee Natero, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Mike Finn on powerful moments in math class. Uh, would everyone please introduce themselves in the chat window telling us what you teach, where you teach, and what your Twitter handle is if you had one or if you have one. Um, and uh, I do want to point out that uh, there is a link that is posted on the top of the chat in that sticky area on the top. Um, and that will uh, give you a copy of the slides for tonight's presentation. So feel free right now to introduce yourselves in the chat. I just realized I did not put it in the right chat spot. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, I definitely see some familiar names in our list of attendees. So yes, I know Annie Fetter. Uh, great to see that we have people from places besides Pennsylvania, uh, from Denver and Illinois. Lots of East, East Coast people here, Eastern time zone people. It's late here, 9 p.m. All right, so before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to explain how these meetings work. These meetings are recorded and are available within 24 hours after the meeting ends. To view the recording, you can use the same link you used to get here tonight. The global math community prides itself on being friendly and supportive. The chat room is available for topical and general conversation throughout the meeting. I'll be sure to catch your questions for the presenter to be addressed at the end of the presentation. Um, and so uh, I would like to introduce our speaker uh, Mike Flynn. Uh, Dr. Mike Flynn is a director of mathematics leadership programs at Mount Holyoke College, where he runs the Master of T Arts in Teaching Mathematics program and leads a wide variety of professional learning opportunities for teachers, teacher leaders, coaches, administrators, and staff developers. He also speaks at national and regional conferences. And so now I'm going to turn the microphone over to Dr. Mike Flynn. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here, everyone. And hopefully in a short while, you'll be able to see me. So my computer stopped talking to my camera for a second. So I just did what we normally do, which is just a quick restart. And it informed me that it's going to install the update, which may take several minutes of all time to do that right before you're presenting. But the computer's doing its thing. And um, I actually have my home screen right now. So this actually might actually be good. We might be in shape. Give me one second. I'll just uh, throw that in here and uh, we'll be in business very shortly, but I want I want to jump right in, and then we'll transition into uh, the camera once I have you all working on some math. So I'm excited because this session is one of my favorite that I've developed because it it was based on a reading of a book by Chip and Dan Heath called The Power of Moments. And if you're not familiar with the book, I highly recommend it because it it, it I think it's really appropriate for educators. It the, it gets at why some memories stand out, why some experiences that we've had stand out so vividly and why we forget other things completely. And uh, like, if you all think right now, if everyone take a moment to reflect on a memory from your childhood, uh, like when you're like elementary age, and I want you to think about like, what's the first thing that popped in your head? And it's likely as you reflect on that memory, you could probably remember uh, the details, the, the way things sounded, the way things might've smelled or who was there, uh, there's a lot of that in there. But if I asked you what you had for breakfast that morning that, of that, when you've had that memory, you probably don't recall that unless of course your memory was the breakfast and, uh, or you probably don't remember like what happened like the day before. And, and so why is it that we can remember something so clearly and forget other things completely? And so the book gets at that, like why certain experiences stand out. And the thing is, as educators, we're in the business of moments. Every lesson that we, we teach, every professional learning session that we do is a moment. 
And we want people to remember those moments. We want these things to be memorable. And so uh, this book kind of gives you the roadmap for how to do that. So that's what I want to share with you today. So let's jump right in. So what Chip and Dan Heath say is that uh, um, memorable experience, uh, memorable experiences contain one, uh, at least one, if not all four of the following uh, elements, elevation, pride, insight, and connection. And if you're like me, you like a handy dandy acronym, uh, you can just think of it as uh, epic. And uh, so we think about epic moments. Um, and, and that's what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at each one of these elements through the math lens so we can see how we can make this happen uh, for our students and for the teachers that we support. So let's jump right in with elevation. So moments of elevation, these are defining moments that rise above the everyday. They provoke not just transient happiness, but memorable delight. And the psychology that kind of underlies this is what's known as the peak end rule. This is a really interesting phenomenon where uh, it, it describes how humans judge experiences. So if you kind of look at the way the peak end rule works right here, you see that like in any, any um, moment that we're having. So imagine like, you know, going to like Disney World, for example, uh, not all of Disney World is a positive experience. Uh, it's like, so you might think like riding Space Mountain is the best. So that would be like that big peak that you see toward the end there. Uh, we call those peaks. But you'll also see that there's also low moments in there like this down here. We have a pit. Um, a pit might be the waiting in line in 105 degree humidity in August uh, to ride Space Mountain. That's probably a pit experience. And um, the way this works is that uh, as you reflect back on a, a, a moment, uh, if you had a stronger positive experience, uh, then you'll remember that more favorably. If you had a stronger negative experience, then you'll uh, remember it less favorably. Uh, so that's an important distinction for us as we think about designing learning experiences. Now, the end part of peak end rule talks about the transitions, the beginnings and the ends of events. Those are the things that uh, that sort of dictate <clears throat> the the how people are um, coming into an event or leaving an event. And those are those tend to be very memorable. So let's consider this scenario. I'm right back into this. So uh, let me just kind of pick up where I left off here. So I was mentioning, like, if you go to a restaurant and your friends, you know, you get up there to the counter um, and the, uh, the it's a long line. You get to the, uh, the, you know, the owner's sort of super rude and everything and kicking people out of line. Uh, so you've got that as a, as a pit experience as well. But then you get outside and you taste the soup. And it's so amazing. You have to sit down to process just how great it is. And, and so that would be a really high peak experience. And so what we're seeing there with this peak experience is that if someone were to ask you a couple of weeks later, hey, do you want to go back to that restaurant? Because that high heightened experience was so much um, stronger, you'll remember that favorably. So where does this fit in with classrooms? Well, think about math class right now. If you were to ask students to rate like sort of their last math class to kind of draw a line and go up when they had some positive experiences and go down when they had some negative experiences. What do you think that line would look like? Go ahead and throw that in the chat. What do you think the line would look like? More downs than ups, right? It's like, and so oftentimes that's like, that's, and I often hear people suggest that it sort of look a little bit like a, uh, a flat line a bit. And, uh, and, and part of that's, I mean, we think about what's going on. So, so when I think about the way a lot of math classes begin, you think about the peak end rule, um, the beginnings might be homework review and the ends might be homework being assigned. And so right, right away with the peak end rule, we're missing out on these critical opportunities because uh, we're, we're starting with things that aren't super exciting for kids. And then if you look at like the, the things that happen during math class, so there might be a test or quiz, worksheets, there might be some lecture. There, uh, these, All of these kind of elements uh, could be classified as pit experiences for students. And so what uh, Chip and Dan Heath get at with the power of moments is that we, our job is to fill pits and to build peaks. That, that's what we do. Um, we anticipate what are some things that kids might not enjoy so much and how do we make those more engaging and uh, and what are ways that we can really amplify things to uh, to really engage our students and so they call this building peak moments and they give a, a three-part recipe for this so the three-part recipe if you want to build a peak experience for someone um, is to first uh, boost sensory appeal and and that is if you think about how we're sensory creatures that's how we take in our world so if we're able to authentically uh, build in any kind of sensory appeal, it's going to be more memorable for people. Uh, the second is to raise the stakes. And what this refers to is 
it, requiring more investment on the part of the students or the audience, the participants uh, for their learning. So that rather than being passive listeners to a lesson, that they're actively engaged, but they're also having to take some risk. They're having to put themselves out there and try new things, um, have the risk of maybe making a mistake or uh, not performing well and and being okay with that. But that, that sort of pressure and that sort of uh, investment there is what we call raising the stakes. Um, the more you're invested in it, the more you're going to remember that experience. And the last thing is called break the script. And breaking the script refers to the way we disrupt schemas. So we all have schemas for different things in life. We have a schema for uh, like going to a restaurant. We have a schema for what schools looks like. Um, and so when we do things like breaking the script, it means that we're we're disrupting the expectation that students have. And when something's new, when when um, so imagine going to a restaurant and the script that you have is you kind of put your name in, then they seat you at the table, they bring some waters, you have the menu, you know, you've got you know what the script is. Well, imagine you went to a restaurant one day and uh, they they sit you and give you water, but then they put a twenty dollar bill on the table, say, hey, it's twenty dollar Tuesdays, you're welcome, and they gave you twenty bucks. That breaks the script. You weren't expecting that to happen at a restaurant. And that's you'll you'll remember that forever. That time you went to the restaurant, you made 20 bucks for no other reason. This restaurant's giving away $20 bills. Um, breaking the script makes things stand out. Well, school has a lot of routine. And so when we can disrupt routines, when we can do things differently, um, that also makes a memorable experience. So let's try something right now. Now, I'm hoping that the video is not super delayed, but I'm going to try to play a clip right here uh, for you to see uh, a task. We're going to try a quick math task together. So just watch the screen uh, and, and then uh, just pay attention to what you notice and what you wonder. And it's a bit choppy, I noticed. So I'm going to do this right now. I'm going to drop in the chat right now for everyone a link to a Google slide. If you go ahead and click on that link, it should take you to a Google slide, ask you to make a copy of a Google slide where you can see what's happening in the video, which is uh, basically I'm rolling out a, a roll of bills. I have a roll of uh, dollar bills in my hand that I hold up to the screen. And then I roll them out and they kind of roll off the screen. And so you'll see uh, when you actually open that slide, you'll see the image of the bills kind of rolling out there. And, uh, and so in the chat, just put down what some things that you noticed and wonder when you see that those bills roll out. And then oftentimes when I do this, so as people like will notice things like the bills rolling out everything, they'll the question that, that comes up to in their mind is how many bills are actually in that role? That's what they want to know. Oh, how they not separate. There they go. Are uh, they taped together? <clears throat> go off screen. Yeah, that's right. Good noticing there. Uh, how are they connected? Uh, or they are connected. That's right. There's definitely more than 10 bills. Good observation. Yeah. And so a big question people often come up with is, is, well, how many bills are there? How much money is in that? So we're going to go ahead and try to answer that. So to answer this question, what information would you want from me to be able to figure out, calculate how many bills are in that role? You need to know, are they all $1 bills? Good question. They're all $1 bills. What else would you need to know in order to calculate how many bills are in that role? How long is a bill? Perfect. I can give you that. So I'll give you that information. If we, if we know how long a bill is, what else will we need to know? Oh, do they overlap? Yeah, uh, they don't overlap. Actually, I painstakingly tape them end to end. Uh, with no gaps or overlaps. So they're end-to-end, -end, all dollar bills. Um, there's the length of one dollar bill right there, uh, which some people will describe as uh, eight cubes long oftentimes, but uh, just kind of point out one thing that people might notice if you look toward the end. Um, how would we describe precisely the length of a bill with these cubes? Is it exactly eight cubes? And if not, how might you describe that? And then someone's asking for how long the whole strip is. I'll give you that information next. But um, eight and some. Yeah, Annie, that's a good one. Yeah, it's like it, it's like a, I like that, a smidge over eight. It's a smidge over eight. Okay. And so how long altogether? So it's 179 cubes long, the whole roll. And it is end to end. 
Um, the first cube is right on the edge of the first bill, and the last cube is right on the edge of the last bill. There's exactly 179 cubes. So right now, I'd like you all to take some time to do the calculation, but you'll probably notice that it doesn't come out clean. So so play with that. Now, typically in a classroom, we would be you'd be working in pairs and uh, and, and uh, strategizing together and trying to figure out what is the exact number of bills. So in the chat, when you when you think you have the answer, put your answer and why you think that. And it is a funny one. I'll be honest. I'll just tell people if you're wondering like why you're getting different answers. So I've never done this and had any fewer than three or four different answers. It, it's, um, it doesn't matter if I'm doing this with students or adults. There's always a wide range of answers. It's just the nature of this task, which is why I love it. And um, But there's some funny things that are happening that, that kind of send our brains in different directions. So we've got some 22s is a thought, 23, could be maybe even 24, got some different arguments. So it's that smidge, right? The smidge is the problem. There's the there's like what's going on with that smidge is, um, and, and some people might notice that on the 179 slide there, you can actually see that the the stacks of eight are no longer really aligned to the bills. Like if you look at that like blue one toward the bottom, it's like if, it looks like it's almost like approaching halfway uh, between there. So uh, there's there's something funny happening, which makes us wonder what the answer could be. Now imagine now classroom of students of any age. I've done this with second graders all the way through high schoolers. And it's uh, the same thing happens. It's just fierce debate. And there's lots of like within groups, there's debate. And then they sort of come to consensus and they share their ideas, but then other people share uh, differing ideas. And then it, it's like, it, and then we go back and, and rethink. And, and there's just a lot of mathematics, a lot of thinking going on. And then we go to the final reveal. So normally we would have this whole kind of debate and things, but I'm going to go ahead just for the sake of time and uh, and do the reveal. Now, this is a video-based reveal, but I'm worried that it's not as, uh, I don't know if it's just on my end or if it's like that for you, but mine's super choppy. So what you should be seeing right now is me uh, unrolling bills or rolling them up here by just kind of jumping around. So you won't get the same effect of the pressure building up when you see the video run smoothly. But uh, you'll if, if it gets to the end is there yeah, real quick, 22. It's precisely 22 bills. And sometimes people are like, well, how can that be because of that shift? Um, this is what the end of the roll looks like if you're curious. Um, there's uh, that that last stack of eight is that purple there. And then the three orange left over. So there's your your three eights. If any of you express that remaining amount as a as a fraction there. But imagine right now, if instead of doing that task, if I gave you just this, either straight up number task, or if I gave you a story problem, uh, would this have been uh, would it have been as engaging for you um, compared to the money roll? And I bet it probably wouldn't be. Um, again, because it's not uh, this. What you're seeing here doesn't take advantage of the peak end rule. So consider the peak end rule with uh, the money roll. So the sensory appeal, uh, it is visual. The whole task is visual um, right from the beginning, the video based piece, the money rolling out and everything. Um, and then depending on how you set up your classroom, it's also very tactile. Like I'll have students working with cubes and things. So there's a lot of multi-sensory uh, aspect to the, the task. Raising the stakes here is what we've done is ask you to do most of the work. The students come up with a question. They have to figure out what information they need and what to do with that. There's very little teacher direction on this task. So it's uh, there's a lot of investment and students have to keep defending their answers and going back and rethinking. So that that's why um, the raising the stakes is really high on this one. And breaking the script, this is not like a typical math problem. So the, the peak end rule kind of just explains for us why three-act math tasks are so popular with students. It's because of this. The three-act tasks are really good at, at, um, at the three-part recipe here. But I don't want people to leave today thinking like, well, all of math class then has to be video-based and multi-sensory and everything. Um, you don't need to do this every single time um, because you, you can't orchestrate these magical moments every single day of the year. You'll be exhausted and they won't be special for kids. So the 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 powerful moments like they come out at, at you know significant times. There's times where it's appropriate for that, but we also don't have to have everything be a Mount Everest peak. You could do something very simple like just breaking the script of one aspect of math class. And I'll tell you a story quickly that I worked with a high school teacher who 
was uh, sort of venting to me about how frustrated she was with her her high school students who would come in sort of lackluster about math. They were kind of they just drag it in there. They'd sit down. They weren't excited to be there, and it was it was frustrating for her because she she put a lot of work into her lessons and things, but she just felt like the kids didn't that they're just sort of tuned out of it. And so we thought about, well, like, how does math class begin? And it began like many do, which is homework review. Uh, she had a do now on the board and they would do homework review. And, and so we, I had a conversation around like, could we do something different? Could we start with a routine that's not homework review that takes just a little bit of time and then uh, just see what that does. So we, uh, we try to do a, uh, would you rather? So I created this, this task for her based on, uh, um, John Stevens work. So he, he runs, would you rather math.com, which is a really good site. If you've not checked it out, it's great prompts on there. So I was inspired by that. So I created this, would you rather for this teacher to use with her, her secondary students, <coughs> excuse me. And so this is, uh, this is it. Would you rather win $500 a week for life or win a million dollars? So if you think of these two scratch tickets, these are both real scratch tickets, neither one by me, by the way, uh, but they do exist or they had existed. Um, which one would you rather win and why? So in the chat right now, put which one you'd rather have and why. And as you're thinking about that, I'm looking back at the chat. Yeah, do I have kids estimate before solving uh, for that task? Yeah, I totally do. Um, when I'm doing this in, with students, we 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 go around the estimating too low, too high. I think that's that's always a great, great way to start. Uh, five, a lot of people like the discipline of $500 a week at once. It's easier to budget. Oh, Joe's talking. So we got investing coming on in here. So million dollars invested, you know, could that return more than, than $500 a week for life? A million now, I want it right up front. Lori's getting a little morbid on us. So I don't know how long their life will be, right? <laughs> so here's the funny thing about this task, right? It's a, it's a simple question. And yet look at all the math that comes up. We're, we're, we've got investment now. So we're probably talking about like, you know, what's the, the, um, percentage here. Uh, we've got life expectancy coming out here. Um, it hasn't come up yet, but taxes usually come out. Um, you know, the other thing to think about is like what we're in right now, think of inflation, like, you know, what's $500 a week going to like what $500 10 years from now, what's the value of that? Does it, is it worth as much or does the $500 a week for life decrease in value over time? And, and so there's lots of great things that come out. Now, this is what happened with this, this classroom of high school students. They didn't want to stop after five minutes. Now I was impressed. The teacher didn't fall into the trap that some of us do, which is when the kids are engaged, we just stay there and say, all right, let's abandon today's lesson. And we're going to just stay with this fun routine for the day. Cause that that's not always helpful because although these things are fun, we still have content that we need to teach. So she was disciplined enough to say, you know what, we're going to stop today. I said, we're just going to do this for five minutes. I've got another lesson for us to, to do, but how about every day this week, the first five minutes of class, we'll keep talking about this. And they were pumped and they went home and that night at the dinner table, that's what the conversation was. And so the kids came in and they were talking about dollar cost averaging and like, and so all of these other terms came out and uh, other arguments. And, and so she started creating charts and, and kids could add to the charts, uh, the different reasons. And it became this really interesting thing that kids were excited to come into class for. Now notice that it wasn't, she didn't make this gigantic like video-based problem and, and redo her entire math class. She changed one thing, which is the way math class began. And, and that's become her thing now. So math class always starts with, it's not always would you rather, but with just some kind of engaging routine that's not homework review. Homework review happens right after that. And that's okay because it starts big because of the peak end rule. So anyway, those are the things that, that I like about the peak end rule. And I encourage you all to think about ways that you might be able to use that uh, in your setting, whether it's professional learning or teaching. So what I'd like us to think about now is uh, we're going to shift away from uh, the, the elevation part of this. And I'd like us to think about now other kinds of moments. So another element for defining moments is pride. Now, moments of pride are different than moments of elevation in that it's all about uh, capturing us at our best. Uh, times that were successful, but also times when we've persevered. So times that we might not have won or, um, you know, maybe we, we didn't get the problem right or uh, we never even finished the problem, but we were able to really work through some difficulty with that. 
and to feel great about that too, because it's easy to celebrate when you're when you're right. But I I think also about the importance of celebrating just the the process that people engage in. And I think about like the movie Rocky, the original Rocky. Um, you'd expect in Hollywood that at the end of the movie he's going to win the fight. By the way, I hope I'm not well. It, it's old enough. I feel like I'm not spoiling it for people. But uh, you know, surprise, he doesn't win the the fight at the end. But yet it's still a happy ending to the story. Uh, because he's the first fighter to go the distance against his opponent. Uh, his opponent, Apollo Creed, the champion, always knocked his opponents out. No one's ever been able to last all 12 rounds, and Rocky did. He still lost, but he he didn't get knocked out. So it was a, uh, a story about perseverance. And so I think about this in terms of math class because – Math class can be a struggle for lots of kids. Lots of kids don't feel math capable. Lots of adults don't feel math capable. And I, I think about the, the the ways in which it affects their identity and how they see themselves as math math capable. And and it, it brought to mind what they reference in the power moments, which is the recognition gap. And this comes from the business world, but I see a tie to education with this. So Carolyn Wiley, uh, she did this research where she identified that the most significant factor for job satisfaction is recognition for work done. Um, it's not high salary. It's not great benefits. Those are nice to have. Uh, but when people are happy in their job, it's because they're recognized for the good work that they're doing. And knowing this, she decided to go in and, and ask bosses. So she she interviewed employers and, and found that more than 80% of employers, uh, supervisors, uh, reported that sh they showed frequent appreciation to their subordinates. That's their word. I hate that word subordinate, but that was what they used in the study. Um, more than 80% said they do this all the time. They uh, totally support them and, and tell them everything, how great they are and recognize them. But then she went and interviewed the employees and, and found that that it was less than 20% of the employees ever felt they received that. And so she called that the recognition gap. But I think a recognition gap exists in education, specifically in math education. And I'd like you to think about this question right now. Who gets positive recognition in math class? And who doesn't? So go ahead and throw that in the chat right now. Which kids are getting the positive recognition in math class and which kids don't? And as you think about that, I want you to think also about how we ensure that all students have access to positive mathematical experiences. Because in my experience, and when I when I check in, I'm seeing a lot of the, the same kind of thinking here, the fast problem solvers, right? The well-behaved kids getting right answers. Uh, it's it's <clears throat> exactly uh, kids that have ideas, but not the, the answers yet. Don't get that same kind of recognition. Right. <clears throat> and this is this is a problem, right? Because there's a variety of reasons that people like when we think about what how teachers define what it means to be good at math um, that teacher's definition will in basically influence who's getting recognition in that class and the thing is very early on students can learn that they're not math capable um, or I shouldn't say learn, they, they will begin to think that they're not math capable and that becomes just part of their persona. But a lot of it comes from this recognition gap um, that they're just not getting the, the kind of recognition that if they don't get that fast answer, that right answer right away, that they're not getting the praise. And so one thing that I want to encourage people to think about, and, and it comes from this book, is they talk about in The Power Moments that recognition should be personal and not programmatic. And it should really emphasize process over just the product. So this is student work that when I was still teaching second grade, this is actually one of my um, students work. And typically what I used to do is I would just put a check mark on it. Like if kids got it right, it's like, boom, fine, you're good. You got it and stuff. Um, if I was feeling particularly generous, I might put like a good or a great. But in general, um, that's about as much recognition that students would get from me. And if they didn't get it wrong, I just circle something and say, like, try hard, you know, try again or something like that. Now, I want you to check this out. Um, look at this feedback right here and think about what you notice about it. What's different about this? Right? It appreciates the process. It's emphasizing that. 
And some of the other things that just, you know, as, as people are kind of thinking about this is that, yeah, Annie, it does name specific strategies and it communicates to this child that I see them, um, that I'm paying attention to them. I'm paying attention to, to them when they're, um, when they're grappling with something, I pay attention to them when they're successful with something. I'm paying attention to them um, when they're having some difficulty. Um, it, it, they feel seen this way. Now, when people see this, the, the I often get responses of like, well, there's no way I can do that for every kid every day. I've got like 100 kids and uh, I know that. So uh, when I'm sharing this here, I'm not saying this is what you need to do every day for a few reasons. Number one, uh, you wouldn't have a life if you did that. Like your whole life would be just giving feedback to kids. But also consider... What would your kids do if that's what you wrote on everything that they turned into you? That's what you wrote for them. Like, what would happen for the kids? Like, I, I, I would guess that they wouldn't read it anymore, right? It becomes a chore. Um, it's no longer special, right? If every single day, that's what it is, that's now become the new routine. So memorable moments happen because they're special. So I would say, could each one of your students get something like this from you once a year or twice a year? Um, what could you do? And, uh, and that's all it really takes these, like, like to just give these, uh, occasionally making sure every student gets something like that from you to communicate that they're seen. I think that's a huge thing we can do for recognition, uh, to build pride. The other thing I like to think about when I think about recognition is its influence on math identity, how kids see themselves. Now, this is something I've been talking about for a while now, and I really believe strongly in it that I think we've got, uh, a labeling problem here in math education. So if you're all familiar with like CRA, concrete representational abstract thinking in math, um, this has been around for a long time, different ways of, of uh, people have different uh, definitions of sort of how this plays out. Um, but there's a lot of mis misunderstanding around CRA. Um, one, one thing I hear a lot about it is that it's linear. Like it means that every kid starts with concrete and then they move to thinking about things representationally and then they move to abstract. Um, I also hear people that it's it's really kind of a race, like the little kids use the the blocks and the the pictures, but eventually we just want to get kids to to abstract um, thinking, and this is the wrong way to be looking at this this these sort of connections. Um, I like to look at these as, as three different islands, and historically, what happens is um, that race mentality of like, gosh, we got to get these kids off that island, is like it causes teachers to then end up like plucking kids off of of concrete island and dropping them right on abstract island just with any tricks and procedures and memorized um, strategies, all of that just to get kids to think numerically. Um, and then we celebrate kids for getting there because we've shown them all the, the, the memorization tricks that allow them to just perform um, with abstract math. And, and we almost devalue those other islands as wastelands that we want to save kids from, right? We just like, gosh, we don't want anyone to be stuck on those islands. And, and we celebrate the kids that make it to abstract Island and they get distinctions like being called like the high flyers of the classroom and the kids left on those other islands uh, have less um, enjoyable names like struggling students or low kids. And, and this to me is like the whole wrong way to kind of think about um, the way we recognize students, because I, I just, I know this, uh, how many of you grew up and playing around the world um, in your, when you were a student. And you know that there was a kid like Taylor uh, who always was the fastest one. And so around the world when I was a student was basically, uh, we could have renamed it, uh, look how smart Taylor is. Uh, because all of us would just sit and wait for Taylor to go around. And it would be like the teacher would strategically say, okay, well, the next time we play it, Taylor will be the last kid to go um, so that the rest of us slobs can kind of get a shot at doing something. But then as soon as we get to Taylor, he wins and then he goes around the world every single time, right? So Taylor would get all this recognition for how great Taylor is. And the rest of us were like, well, we're just, we don't, we don't measure up. Um, this is the problem with this. So I want you to think about this right now, because um, imagine right now, all of you, if, if you think about some students that you know, who are really good at computation, um, they've got really good memorized procedures, but they can't explain why any of it works, right? You just put a yes in the chat. If any of you know of a student who you've seen a student like that, they're good at computation, but have no idea how any of it works. If you ask to explain their thinking, they're like, I just did, I don't know. Um, it's, it's something I see quite often. I remember as a second grade teacher, it, it, it was really hard because the students were, they needed to learn so much more conceptually, but they were almost turned off by the work I wanted them to do because they could get the answer really quickly, right? This is hard because this student has this identity of how great they are at math, 
because they are really good at a specific skill set in math. Their working memory is really strong and they've learned some strategies that they can hang on to. And so for a while, they're on top of the world with math. But talk to some secondary teachers because the secondary teachers see what happens when these students hit algebra and they don't have the fundamental understanding. They've got good memorized procedures, but that doesn't help you in algebra. And so their identity crumbles. Um, when they get their first F, it's traumatizing for them. So that's an issue. But we also have kids on, on um, Concrete Island and, and Representational Island um, who may be slower at getting the answers, but they're deep thinkers. So also in the chat, put a yes or that's me, uh, whatever you want to express it. If you know students, who don't get fast answers, but they are deep thinkers who have a really solid understanding of the mathematics. And I remember I, many of those students, I was one of those students. I was one who was a slow thinker, um, but, uh, and I was, I always thought I wasn't good at math because I wasn't the tailor in the room. And so like me, students on those other islands uh, feel less capable of math, almost like it's not for us. And so this is the problem we have here with, with the kind of recognition we give. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to think about this differently. Instead of looking at this as a race to abstract island, think of this as a bridge building exercise. Uh, what we want is for students to be able to build connections between the different ways of thinking. Um, so if you have a student who's thinking concretely, um, as they transition to think a little bit representationally, maybe they draw a base 10 diagram instead of building with base 10 blocks. When they make that move, in their brain, they've built this little rickety bridge, this little connection between these two islands. And it's it's rickety at first because it's a, it's a loose connection. But as they go back and forth and compare their representation to their concrete model, that bridge is gonna be rebuilt and reinforced over and over again till eventually it's this really strong, solid bridge that connects those islands. Now, the same thing's gonna happen when you transition between um, the representational and the concrete and get to abstract island. And so for there, you build another rickety bridge. You start thinking numerically with uh, the flexible strategies and decomposing numbers and playing around with things, but you check to see how does that work on the number line or does that work with the base 10? And as you do that, that little rickety bridge eventually gets reinforced. So what you end up with is a student who's now on, you know, have been on all islands, but has strong connections between all three of them. So to me, being strong in mathematics means you've got strong bridges between them. And what it means to be a good math teacher is you're a really good bridge builder. You help kids see these connections here. And this is where we can take those students who are good, good with computation, but don't, don't know how to explain their thinking and help them build back bridges so they can see representationally or concretely why these things all work and build that understanding. And we can support the students who are thinking concretely um, by authentically including their work and using that to, as part of the bridge building process. What I love about this model is notice that for each island, we're, we're, we're celebrating the thinking. I'm not calling kids low kids or high kids. I hate those terms. Uh, they don't mean anything. Um, I, I like to describe the the kinds of thinking that kids are doing. So my my kids who are thinking concretely right now, um, this is what they're doing. Or my kids who are thinking representationally right now. Notice I don't say my representational thinkers. These are kids who are thinking representationally now. They might not be thinking that way tomorrow. They might be thinking more abstractly or concretely. It's fluid because we want to be in all of these spaces here. So uh, this is how I'd like us to kind of redefine uh, the ways we recognize kids and celebrate the thinking that's happening on all three of those islands. And just to reinforce that this isn't linear. Um, you could have a kid who comes in thinking abstractly about math because someone showed them an algorithm and they can then work backwards to uh, like in, in different directions, I shouldn't say backwards, but in different directions to um, to strengthen that thinking. So this is why I like to, to uh, consider how we're recognizing and building moments of pride. Um, we do that by getting rid of these kind of labels like low flow or low kids and high flyers and stuff. And, uh, and instead we focus on uh, helping kids to build these strong bridges between these islands and engaging students uh, in meaningful ways. So to kind of, as we get near the end, I'm gonna just do a light touch on these other two uh, kinds of elements here for powerful moments, but I wanted to really make sure we hit elevation and pride pretty deeply here. So the next, the next element of defining moments is insight. And for here, uh, Chip and Dan Heath described this as defining moments that rewire our understanding of ourselves and our world. Uh, so it's self-insight as well as insight into a phenomenon in our world. I just added mathematics to this because I, that's what I want to have our lens on. And so one big thing that comes up with, with this is they talk about 
the important to stretch for self-insight. So in order for students to understand sort of their own capabilities in math, we want to be able to put them in places where they're at risk of failure, having to challenge themselves, having to struggle a little bit here. Now, I'm going to give an example of this insight, not from math world, but from um, uh, just a personal story here. But like uh, a, a number of years ago, I told my wife to clear her calendar for a Friday night. I was going to take her out for a date night uh, and just kind of surprise her and everything. Now, she was expecting this for date night. So I remember she came downstairs and she was like dressed beautifully and everything. And I thought, oh, honey, <laughs> I think you're going to need to change. We're not we're not going anywhere fancy. Um, I'm, I'm taking you to a different kind of romantic place. The uh, the Agawam Axe House. So uh, if any of you have ever done axe throwing, the um, uh, it is not the most romantic thing, but hey, it's breaking the script. So with the Agawam Axe House, the way it worked is uh, you, you show up and I thought you were going to get a lesson on how to throw axes, but they told me they they can't really show that. We have to kind of figure it out on our own. So they gave us a safety demonstration and then we had to just sit there and practice chucking it different ways, different stances, different grips, uh, closer to the board, further from the board. And it was hard and it was frustrating at times because it was a struggle to even get it to stick into the board. And then once we did, then you had to try to get it to stick in the bullseye. Um, but once we got there we got our rhythm eventually we were able to pretty regularly get it to stick in the board and then we could finesse it and get to the point where we could have it actually into the bullseye which was uh it made for a great night and and so we had a blast it was super fun but here's why this is significant uh it reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from uh deborah shifter and, and kathy fosno who said that no matter how lucidly and patiently teachers explain uh, to their students they cannot understand for their students and and to me this was super clear in the axe throwing because they as much as they wanted to tell us how to throw these axes it wouldn't have helped us understand how to do it we had to figure out what was how we were going to come into this here and and the thing is once we did they were able to come and help us uh, finesse things a little bit but it we needed to struggle for a while and that's one of the big things that i think that we we have a history in math of trying to avoid, which is struggle. Uh, a lot of times we, we see ourselves, our roles as teachers, as um, our roles to reduce struggle or eliminate struggle. And I kind of think about this sort of question here is, um, are you more of a lifeguard or a swim instructor as a as a teacher? Um, and, and what this means is like, if you think about the kind of uh, the jobs here. So a lifeguard's job is basically to eliminate struggle. Whenever someone's struggling in the water, you take them right out. But a swim instructor, a good one, actually encourages this. So um, I have a daughter uh, who's three years old. Uh, she just turned three today, actually. And last summer, we started her with a swim lesson with a, with a teacher. And she, we, Cora had this bubble on that had uh, like four or five layers to it. And when the swim instructor put Cora in the water, Cora's chest was out of the water a little bit. So she actually took some of the, the layers off of that bubble. So Cora's chin was just above the water right there. And then she actually put a uh, five pound weight on each one of Cora's wrists um, in the water. So she was actually adding struggle for Cora, uh, which surprised me, but she, she was explaining. She said the, the, the struggle she has now moving her arms in the water makes her aware that her arms have to do something. And she said, watch what happens when I take those weights off. And so she took them off and then Cora's arms moved more fluidly in the water. And it's like, that's exactly what has to happen. But in math class, like oftentimes we, we, we just want to rescue kids when, when they have some difficulty. So um, I want you to think of this story here. So when I was teaching second grade, we were working on uh, subtraction. We had just started working on it. Um, it as kids, have, they, they mastered addition. They were so used to solving things with base 10 with addition and kids often will use those same strategies when they go to subtraction and interesting things happen. So, um, at the time I had been, uh, reading, uh, John Vanderwall's work. And, uh, one of the things that, I, that I love from this, uh, from John Vanderwall and his team is this idea of this conceptual understanding Pentagon, which describes the ways in which kids make sense of mathematical ideas through context and models and, uh, words and, and number and pictures and equations and everything. And so we were definitely deep into that work. And so, um, I posed this question to the class and had them talk um, as a group. We were doing a little math talk on um, how would you want to solve this? And of course, they wanted the base 10 blocks. And I said, well, what would we need to do? And they said, you got to get four uh, sticks of 10 and and three ones. And and then uh, we're going to just we'll do the tens first, then the ones. And so they're all excited. And they said, all right, well, the first thing you do is you're going to take 40. You're going to take 20 away from that. So we would we demonstrated that. And and then we got to this part 
where it was three minus seven and everyone's like, some kids said it's impossible. Other kids are saying, no, I think you can do it. And they, they, so there was a moment here. Now, admittedly, I used to be the David Hasselhoff of math. Uh, when I first started teaching, I would instruct kids on exactly how I wanted them to do things. And if uh, then I'd set them, I'd set them to work with some tasks and I would sit back and wait for the hands to go up with the struggle. And I'd race across the room like David Hasselhoff and uh, and rescue kids. And David Hasselhoff, Mike, at this point would have jumped right in and said, no, 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 no. You can break apart one of those other tens and get more ones if you wanted and stuff. But um, I was beyond David Hasselhoff at this point. I actually really em embraced the struggle. So I told the kids, well, there has to be an answer. We have to be able to take 27 from 43. I want you to work with your partners to figure this out. Now, what I expected was that some kids were going to recognize that you could take one of those tens apart. And a lot of kids did that. Um, but what I didn't expect was what happened with Tallulah and Ben. So Tallulah and Ben, were they called me over and they were super excited. Uh, and Tallulah said, hey, I know you can't take seven from three. I didn't. I didn't want to get into the negatives and stuff like that. I just said, no, okay, uh, just listen to her. She says, okay. And I said, but she said a seven has a three and a four in it. And she said, so you can at least take that three away. And I, I'll admit that I was, I wasn't sure where she was going with this, but I thought they were wrong. I thought like, okay, this is like, I see what she's trying to do here, but it's not going to work out. And I just let them go. But in my head, I'm kind of like, that's, that's, that's what I'm expecting. So then I just say, well, then what are you going to do with the four? And, and she <laughs> looked at me like, sort of like, well, like, don't you know? And she said, well, you're just going to take it away from the, the 20. And uh, it floored me. Cause I just realized like, wait a second, like, how did that happen? And, uh, and at that moment I was like, okay, do I own that and say like, I don't really understand what just happened or do I nod and say, oh, that's a really good strategy and then figure it out on my own and, um, and just pretend I always, I knew it would work. And I decided to own it and say, I've never seen that before. And I'm not quite sure how that works. Can we try it again with another, with a similar problem? So we did another one together and I was floored and it was, uh, it was really interesting. And so I'm not afraid to admit today that I learned this strategy and this is actually how I do mental subtraction. Now I learned it from a second grader. Um, I gained insight, um, from a second grader, but the thing is, my class gained a ton of insight just about uh, subtraction from this kind of work, from uh, being able to represent the mathematics in different ways and being able to struggle. Now, I'd like to give you one for your own uh, learning right now to give you a chance to do get some insight and to struggle a little bit with something. So this pro this this problem right here, um, I'm going to give this kind of like a pillow problem where you're going to just take home take it home and sleep on it uh, for tonight because. Uh, it's going to, I don't want to rush people through it. I want you to have the time to kind of play with it, but, but I'm going to give you some major questions to think about so that you'll be able to, uh, uh, dig into some of these things. So for this task, I'd like you to solve it by drawing a diagram first, just to model the situation. Don't go into solving it arithmetically right now. Start with just a, a representation, then solve it arithmetically, um, using whatever rules or procedures that you've learned and stuff. Then I want you to pay attention to how your arithmetic sentence matches your diagram. Where do you see these elements that make the connections between the numerical way of thinking about it and the, the pictorial way of thinking about it? So what I'm going to do right now is drop in the chat. I'll put it on the screen too, but I'm going to drop in the chat another Google slide for you to copy. Uh, but here's the problem. So Homer Simpson. So Homer really likes cakes and he decides that one serving should be three fifths of a cake. Now he has four cakes, all the same size. How many servings does Homer have? Now I'm going to put both the, the task and the, the problem on the board here, and I'm going to drop it into the chat for you all right now. So if you just click on this link, it'll, it'll allow you to make your own copy of Homer's cakes and just play around with it. Now, what I'd like you to think about Okay, so as as you're uh, as you're playing with this, is we know that one way to think about this is four divided by three fifths. You can you can play around with that. We also know that many of us learn this rule that yours is not to reason why, just invert and multiply. <laughs> That's how I learned it. Um, so we know that you also can solve the problem this way. Um, now, what I'm really curious about you, uh, if you can do this, is as you draw your diagram, I'd love for you to see and describe where in your diagram do we see four divided by three fifths? 
And then where do we also see in that same diagram four times three fifths or five thirds rather four times five thirds. That's your sort of take home problem to think about because I want us to get into the last one, which is moments of connection just to wrap this up. But this is give you a chance to kind of grapple with some things, struggle with some things and hopefully gain some insight as to why invert and multiply actually works. So let's talk about the last one, which is moments of connection before we uh, wrap things up for today. So moments of connection, uh, these are uh, moments that bond us. They're social. They, 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 they connect us with others. We feel warmth, unity, empathy, and validation. And it's, it's really where we create the culture, our class culture. Now, in the power moments, they talk about the importance of creating shared meaning. Uh, and to do that, they say you design a synchronized moment. This is a moment that connects a group of people. So think about like, like corporate America when they like send people out to do like ropes courses and like those challenge weekends and things to bond people. There's a reason for that. It's this psychology right here that when people have to struggle with something together and work together, you build closeness that way. Um, if any of you have ever been in a cohort program for like a graduate program or something, or if you've been on a team or part of a band, anything where you've had to work together with other people, there's lots of hard work where you struggle together. That's where closeness happens. Now in math class, we can do this by designing a synchronized moment um, where everyone's kind of working on the same thing and it's inviting shared struggles. So it's not that two kids are struggling, but everybody has to struggle with it. And it's connected to deeper meanings. So this is math that the students are all engaged in, all struggling with, but they're all working to build shared understanding. It's not like each kid in isolation is going to get graded and here's like, oh, you did great. You didn't do so hot. They're all part of the learning together. So everyone's contributing to that. So I'm going to share an example of what this looks like in a math class. So I was a uh, uh, part of my work when I work around the country is I, I work with school districts and I teach their classes. So I do learning labs and uh, I teach preschool through 12th grade and and I, I get a chance to work with lots of different kids and teachers. But my work is we plan with the teachers and then we go in and enact the lesson. And so I was working with some third grade teachers and they were um, they were using a math curriculum, a published curriculum. And one of the lessons was the nines finger trick, which uh, I couldn't believe it was actually in a book. It's uh, uh, I worked so hard to get this out of math class and it, it's right there in the book. And the teacher said there was it was always frustrating. The kids get frustrated with this. It's like a fun trick but it doesn't really work in a lot of instances. If you're not familiar with this, by the way, so you got, um, you, you're, you're to do five times nine. Uh, basically you drop that fifth finger. And, uh, and so you put those up and you have four fingers to the left of the severed finger and five to the right. Uh, therefore your answer is 45. Um, that's the trick. And it, it has, it works for 10 instances. That's not very generalizable. It's super hard to understand why it works. Um, you can, uh, it helps to under, if you play with this in different base systems, you can figure out why that works, but it's way too complicated for third graders and it's not really useful. And so the teachers, we, we said like, what if we did something different? What if we had the kids actually look at the regularity that happens uh, comparing multiplying by 10 and multiplying by nine? So what we decided to do is on anchor chart, we basically wrote down um, these, these different equations for students to connect. So we asked them first, just what do you notice and what do you wonder? So like right now, just take a peek at those, those equations and just what do you notice? Like when you look at nine times four and then 10 times four or nine times seven and then 10 times seven or nine times 16 and 10 times 16, uh, what are you noticing each time? And it's likely uh, you'll, as people, you, 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 play around with it a bit, you'll notice what the other kids noticed, which was like, oh, so the answer is really just one more of those, that factor, right? So uh, 10 times four, the difference between 10 times four, and nine times four is four. It's just one of those fours. And the difference between 10 times seven and nine times seven is seven. It's just one of those seven. And uh, and that's exactly what the kids um, noticed. And and so it took a little while for them to notice that. And they, they kind of struggled together and I said, all right, now your job is to like, do you think that'll always work? Um, if And so we set them off to think about, uh, is there a way they can express that as a rule? So the kids grappled for a while, trying to think of like, if they had to test it to see, does it always work? And then they, they, they started to like wordsmith a rule. And eventually we landed on this um, out of the mouth of a third grader, which is when you want to time something by nine, just times the something by 10 and then minus the something. 
And to me, that is just brilliant because it's, it's algebraic thinking uh, from a third grader and it captures everything that's that's just beautiful about this math. And they said, man, Mr. Flynn, that was really hard. And I said, yeah, it was. And you're not done yet. Now I want you to go back with your partners and I want you to build a representation based argument. I want you now to build a representation that shows why your rule works. And so they had to go back and think about the ways that they show multiplication. So arrays and area model and all of that. And so um, like different kids did different things. Like one group, like they sort of made a nine by five array and then they added on another uh, column. So then it was a 10 by five array. So there's your like, there's your 50. And then they sort of like erased the, the extra one there. So basically it's just minusing that, that extra something that's on the end here. And uh, other groups like, you know, cause that was a very specific one that just shows how it works for nine times five. Other groups kind of did an, an area model where they did, uh, you know, nine times something, which I love the fact that they put something there. And, uh, and then they just added another something on there. So there's 10 times something, and then you just minus the something. And that gives you the answer for that nine. And what's cool with that is they realize that this will work for any, any multiplying by nine, just multiply that thing by 10 and then minus that something. It's, it's beautiful. So when we were done and the kids talked about the struggle, I asked them to describe what this was like for them. And I just captured some of the, the things that they said, because I want you to notice the, the theme that um, from what the kids said. So one child said it was cool because we figured it out together. Another kid said, I thought it was hard, but in a good way, it was hard for all of us. And that was okay. And then the last one was at first, we didn't know what to do. Then we all just got it. And you can kind of see the theme there. I highlight it for you, but it's like, look at the note, like the we and together, all of us. Um, that's the synchronized moment here. Um, so this was a chance for these kids to bond. And this became their rule. Um, they shared it with the principal. There was a lot of pride around that. And that's really helpful uh, for students. So uh, this is ways that ways that we build connection, that math doesn't have to just be isolated, that it can be um, a, a connecting experience for kids to be uh, vulnerable together. Now, getting at this idea of vulnerability is I just want to mention that there's there's two other pieces of psychology I just want to share with you, and then we'll just close things out. Um, but in the power moments, they say if we can create the right kind of moment, relationships can change instantly. And, and this is all about deepening ties. Now, a study they referenced here, to me, this is one of the most important studies. If you, if you ever facilitate learning with kids or with adults, this study is really helpful to understand what we need to do to build closeness among our cohorts that we're, that we're supporting. Um, this comes from Art Aaron. It's the, the common name for it now is 36 questions. It's got a more technical name for the research. It's been co-opted by the relationship community. So if you Googled 36 questions, it'll usually be followed by 36 questions to fall in love. <laughs> so uh, we're not doing that with our students, but I'm just saying like that, there, you'll see where it comes from. So in the study, they, they got college students and they asked them to rate their closeness with people in their lives. Like how close are you with your mom, your dad, your neighbor, your teacher, your, your whatever, your roommate, um, all of these different people on a scale, like one to five or something like that. Five, super close, one, not close at all. And then they paired them off randomly with another participant in the study. And the, they had to go through a conversation um, and do three rounds of questions, 12 questions in each round, and hence 36 questions. So here's an example of a round one question. What constitutes a perfect day for you? So partner A would answer, then partner B would then answer the question. So they have that conversation. Super light, easy. All of you right now would probably be very comfortable sharing the perfect day if you want in the chat. You'd have no hesitation doing that. That starts the ball rolling. Now, after 12 of those kinds of questions, they go to round two questions. Round two, what is your most treasured memory? Notice the difference with that. Would you be as comfortable right now in the chat putting your most treasured memory in there? My guess is probably, maybe, but probably a little hesitation just because it's strangers, it's public here. Um, do you want to share that right now? Is that everybody's business? So notice that it's getting a little bit more personal. And then 12 rounds of that, or 12 questions with that. Now go to round three. This one's a doozy. <laughs> so uh, I've got it memorized, so I'll wait till it pops up. But if you were to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told them, told someone? And why haven't you told them that yet? 
Would you be comfortable putting that in the chat right now? Now, this is what happened here. They had to do 12 questions at this level, this level of intimacy here, vulnerability, right? That's what's happening. So in the end of the study, they asked the partners to rate their their closeness to the partner in their study. And overwhelmingly, the participants rated their, their closest with their partner in the study higher than people who are in their actual lives. And it's not because of those questions. The questions, believe it or not, are they're not irrelevant, but it's not the specific questions. It's what was happening during this, which is known as uh, reciprocal and escalating vulnerability. So what happened was one person opened up and shared something that was vulnerable and the other partner reciprocated by sharing something that was equally or more escalated in vulnerability. And, and that's what brings close people closer together. Um, think about this right now in life. Like we we're, we're around humans all the time. How often do you connect with people? So if you're like me, if you've ever, uh, any of you fly on planes, um, in the chat, put your, uh, say a yes. If, uh, if you're like me, uh, in that when you sit on a plane, you hope that people who sit next to you don't want to talk to you. <laughs> and I don't want to make myself sound super rude, but I, um, I have ADHD. And one of the things that helps me work is being in public spaces. I get the most work done. It's called body doubling, by the way, if you're, uh, if you're interested in neurodivergence, um, body doubling is when you, um, are more productive when other people around, you're not interacting with them. You just need physical people present. Um, and so on a plane, I can get like more work done on a flight across country than I can in a whole week in my office because of that. And so I don't want people sitting next to me that are going to talk, but, um, so there's times where they, like, I'm not making any, any connections at all. Um, with people. But I was on a flight coming back from Texas and I was flying into Hartford and I boarded the plane. I sat on the aisle seat and uh, across the aisle from me in the middle seat was a, a gentleman about my age. And uh, we both got on early. We both got our laptops out and we're working. A little later on in the boarding process, an elderly woman walks on and um, and she's talking to someone who's already behind her. And I'm like, oh, we got to talk her. And, uh, and then she sat down. Luckily, on uh, the window seat next to the the guy in the um, in the middle seat across from me, so I'm like, oh, thank God! And uh, and she starts talking to him right away, and he's like nodding and smiling, being polite. And then, you know, at some point, he gave me a look like that Jim Halpert look from the office, and like, <laughs> and I I put my earbuds in. And I thought, thank God, she's sitting next to him. And um, and eventually, he put his laptop away, and he just started talking with her. And then she was oversharing, and then he's oversharing, and like I just turned my volume up. And I had a very productive work session the whole flight home. We landed in Hartford and uh, and she let out this laugh of joy. And she said, this was the best flight home I've ever had. And you are the best seatmate. And they hugged. I kid you not. They hugged. And I'm watching that and, and, and you know, I'm packing up and, and uh, they're getting off and he helps her with her bag. And I'm walking behind them and, and, and watching this tender moment. And I can't help but think what a piece of crap I am <laughs> because, you know, here he is. He, they made this connection because he took the time to just talk to another human being. And so I share that because when you think about vulnerability and closeness, um, we have opportunities to build closeness with all sorts of people in our lives. And a lot of times we're just so busy. We just kind of plod through that. Well, in classrooms or in professional learning settings, we're working with people. And it's our job to foster connections. And we can actually use Art Aaron study to build more closeness. So at Mount Holyoke College, where I run this grad program, we we designed it to be like way before the pandemic. We were using Zoom back in 2012 uh, when Zoom just started. And we've been trying to figure out how do you build closeness with people who are in Mozambique and Kenya and Seattle and Orlando and on campus with us at college in the college. And so we actually use some of this work from our Aaron study and we started to put in questions. So when we would send people into breakout rooms to do math together, we'd say, before you start the math task, I'd like you to answer this question uh, as a group. Uh, when was a time when you were younger that you were felt successful in math? And then, then do the math problem. And they would have that conversation. And then the next time we do a breakout room, we say, okay, before you do the task, share a time when you were embarrassed in math class. Notice what we're doing. So we start with like lower vulnerability and then we'd escalate that vulnerability and start those conversations. And what happened was we found very quickly people started to bond. These connections started to come out. 
And we realized that there's a key to that, giving people opportunities to open up about about things that are difficult is a way that we can do that and you just like so i'm just going to encourage you to, to do that uh because it does create this space where uh we can now have shared vulnerability in math class because that's where the optimal learning happens when people can be safe and comfortable making mistakes and taking risks so with all of that i'm going to close things out by saying the the last advice that they give in in the power moments around connection is that there, Harry Reese did this study where he talked about perceived partner responsiveness, and this is where connections come in. Um, he mentions that if uh, when people feel close, when they feel like their partner understands them, and that means like that my partner or my teacher, my classmate, however you define partner, um, knows how I see myself and, and knows what's important to me. Um, they also feel closeness when uh, they feel like their their partner validates them. Uh, and that would be like my teacher and classmates respect who I am and what I want. And the last part is that my partner cares about me. And that's my teacher and my classmates take active and supportive steps in helping me meet my needs. So this perceived partner responsiveness scale here talks about the, the ways in which people feel connected to others. And so like, and this works in like relationships, like if you you're have a partner in life, um, you know, do you, how, how explicitly do you demonstrate your understanding of your partner and validate them and care about them so that they, they see it, they know that's how you feel about them. Um, it's important for us to do that, um, in our lives. It's important for us to do this in our workspace when we're doing professional learning. Um, I want my participants to know that I, I do care about them. I want to get to know them and I want to take active and supportive steps for them. When we do that, you build closeness. So, um, there's a lot to this and I highly recommend reading the power of moments to see how this can fit into your work. My challenge to you all now is to think about how do you take these ideas and build it into your professional learning or into your math teaching, um, whether you work with adults or kids, uh, to create epic moments for your audiences um, and, and, and create experiences that will resonate with them for years to come. So I want to thank you all for your time. And uh, again, if you're interested, the the link is uh, right there to get the slides. You'll be able to find that. If you're interested in uh, connecting more with me, um, I love to give away a lot of free resources and things. So uh, you can find me on, uh, I have a YouTube channel where I'm going to be posting lots of content coming up here on, on math videos and things and tips for teachers. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, even with Elon Musk, <laughs> I'm still on Twitter. Uh, although I noticed my following dropped as a bunch of people deleted their accounts. So, <laughs> um, anyway, we'll see what happens to Twitter, but, uh, you can totally check me out on those places if you want to get some more free resources. And I want to thank you all for your time. Sorry for the little bit of tech issues in the beginning. And thanks for your patience as we navigated that. Um, this is usually pretty smooth sailing for me, so that doesn't happen often, but I, uh, I'm, I'm glad you all stayed with me. So have a wonderful night, everyone. Thank you very much for uh, presenting, Mike. Lots of uh, great things to uh, think about. Um, and I didn't really see a lot of questions in the chat. I mean, there was a few that happened, but I think you pretty much answered them uh, during the course of your presentation. Um, next week, we will be hearing from uh, Luke Wilcox, Lindsay Gallus, and Sarah Stecker uh, about uh, what is experience first, formalize later. Um, and it's, it's actually uh, their approach to teaching lots of topics in, in high school math, including um, AP statistics and AP calculus, among others. Um, and that is next Tuesday, May uh, 5th. I said May 5th already. It is going to be May. Oh, sorry. May 3rd. May 3rd. Uh, it's going to be May already. Crazy. All right. Thank you very much, everyone. We appreciate your time. Bye, everyone.